Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. My name is Tiffany Westrich-Robertson. I am the CEO of the organization and also a person living with AI arthritis diseases, plural, maybe, depending on who you talk to. So my primary diagnosis is axial spondyloarthritis, the non-radio graphic version, if you want to be specific. And I am here today with a couple of people. And one of them is sitting right next to me. And I want to welcome her, Miss Deb Constein. Hey, Deb. Hey, Tiffany. Pleasure being here, as always. <laughs> oh, as always. So yes, yes, Deb is a recurring patient co-host on our show. So Deb, why don't you tell everyone a little bit about you if they do not already know? Sure. I am tuning in today from Madison, Wisconsin, and I am a longtime person with AI arthritis diseases. I started my journey at the age of 13, and I am 39 years into my journey, so you can do the math and figure out how old I am. (laughs) And I, too, have many comorbidities and lots of other add-ons to my just rheumatoid arthritis. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And, And, you know, that's a really... That's actually a really good segue into what our topic is today when we talk about all, we has plural because I also even though I don't talk about it much I do have Bichette's disease on my chart if you look at it and it's not typical so it could be there's there's another version called Bichette's like disease that we've seen out there over the the last couple of years so I think it, it more is in fitting with that but a good example of just comorbidities and not being checking the boxes, not being typical, so to speak. And that is, it seems like most of us are, what what did somebody say yesterday? Autoimmune soup or or autoinflammatory soup, whichever side of the immune system exactly target exactly so again it's like whatever you're adding to the soup this you know this year could be different from last year and you could have new ingredients and <laughs> take a few out exactly because <laughs> they've changed a little bit uh, exactly and that is really why the topic that we that we have today is so important we're going to talk about the importance of being average an average patient being a not so average patient and the time now for all of us to be able to come forward and use our voices to influence our access to therapies, our access to disease management. And how do we do that? We do that in the way of public policy, meaning influencing government or our health systems, or if you're in the U.S. insurance access or all this 
falls into one. And it is very difficult to all have appropriate access to health care if we don't tick specific boxes. So, so that is a beautiful way of saying it. Yes. So that's what that what we're going to talk about today. And Deb and I are going to lead it off. And then we're going to transition to another guest that we have here today. And I will be talking then with John O'Brien. He is the CEO of the National Pharmaceutical Council. He's going to be weighing in on what we're calling a, a paper that they have called the myth of average. And that's why the show today is is about that, because it really does resonate with the idea that we don't all fit a general patient population, which makes it very difficult when we're thinking of policies and especially moving to innovation of new therapies and the need for that, the need to not cut the funding for for new research and and thinking of all of that and how can we as patients come to the table and make a difference. And we think the answer is through more of our voices being involved in both research and in public policy. So we think it's 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 time for change. Absolutely. We're going to jump right into this. So first, well, you know, we did say atypical and I, I just thought, you know, Deb, you've not ticked some of the boxes. At first you did. Many boxes, At yeah. At first you did, though. Didn't you get diagnosed pretty pretty quickly in relevant terms to a lot of us? Um, year and a half or so, just because they... So my, my journey started with the foot surgery, and I went in for a foot surgery. I was, you know, perfectly normal, doing all activities, whatnot, and went in for a bunion surgery on my foot. The surgeon, when he was in there, noticed the tissues looked unique. So he took some tissue samples and basically waking up from surgery, it was my trigger, I think is the best word of trigger for opening the door to my autoimmune disease that was just sitting there waiting to be activated. They went from, you know, you have JRA. That was the easiest description back then. And that stands for? Juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. And typically, doing research about that, you can grow out of that, they said back then. Then over a period of time, they were still seeing how much disease activity I was having. They thought lupus for a while because I wasn't, I don't think I was seropositive to start with. And I have been seropositive, but I've also gone back and forth from being seropositive rheumatoid factor to being seronegative. So I don't know how that happens, but again, we're all unique. And then with the severity of the joint destruction, they went to rheumatoid arthritis. And that's kind of where I've landed over the years. But now they've changed terminology. There's <laughs> JA, there's you know juvenile idiopathic arthritis, JIA. There's so many different things. And you know there's so many different definitions on my medical record of for getting medications that are more for juvenile rheumatoid arthritis. They've gone to that diagnosis. They've used rheumatoid arthritis. I'm all over the place, but 
personally, I've landed with RA and that just sits nicely with me right now. <laughs> well, you know, and well, and myself, I was originally the mystery patient. Then right. they said rheumatoid arthritis because that was the closest thing that matched my symptoms. But they said right. they, they actually used the word atypical, which makes sense because then in 2013, it it was axial spondyloarthritis, right. which non-radiographic is a spectrum of ankylosing spondylitis. But it, that diagnosis didn't even exist prior to 2012, 2013. Right. So I was right. one of the first diagnosed with that. And that just uh, that is just in itself an example of the difficulty of not only the journey, but name changes and research and how research progresses. And we start yes. to to realize for me, for example, that that the medication I was on was not working. Well, of course mm -hmm. it wasn't working because it was indicated for rheumatoid arthritis. And right. then I ended up being on the proper medication and, and, the, and it changed my life my life dramatically. But, you know, we've talked about this, Deb. Some things that you've tried or other people with rheumatoid arthritis have tried work wonderful for you, not for them. Absolutely. And that's what I always have, because there will be people that will ask me, so, hey, you, did you try Simsia? Did you try Humira? And I'm like, yeah, but my journey is so different because I'm, everybody is individualistic. You know, we're just individuals of our own and our body makeup is unique and we're all unique. So if it works for me, that doesn't mean it's going to work for you and be your magic drug. <laughs> no kidding. And then think about it. I'm going to circle back, back to that. But the other thing is just think about all of these changes. And even you as a person, I know you've gone in and talked to your legislators before. Oh, yeah. And actually just last week. How much your journey has changed since the first oh. time you talked to them till now? Oh, my God. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Absolutely. So, yes. So think about you times thousands. In, in just their territory, and then right. times that by however many we have in it. I'm talking about Canada and, you know, or, or Australia or, you know, different countries in Europe, whatever everywhere. you live. Yeah, everywhere. And right. you times that, you know, there's millions of us around the world with evolving stories and evolving journeys. So while we're, we're trying to get stories to, to explain to people who are making the decisions on how we access our health care and the Correct. treatments that we need, how important is it that not only more than just you and me and some of the lucky ones who get that opportunity to go speak to, yeah. to those people, but how much we change and evolve over time. And that even yes. shows why it's more important that a one and done isn't enough because Absolutely. the legislators and the government and those people need to really understand that we are so, our diseases evolve and our needs change. And so we need to make sure that more and more voices are heard and continued to hear so that people making the decisions can really see for themselves, wow, this person is totally different off than they were five years ago. When I, and and Absolutely. so their needs might be different and, and Wow, what a great reason why we need to continue pushing innovation and making sure that there are treatments that work for these people. Because let's face it, if you're evolving and your disease is evolving, it's because you're not 100% controlled, mm -hmm. right? 100%. So in saying that, I'm going to just circle back 
the title of this episode being the myth of average in, in time for change, we we're just talking about the different treatments and how they are different for different people. We've I used to use the analogy of, of cough medicine because I always think that, well, I think XYZ is by far the best because I'll tell you what, every time I use it, it works for me within 24 hours. And then somebody else will say, oh, no. Uh-uh, M-N-O-P, that is, that is the best one. And now, oh, that didn't do anything for me. And in the, in, that, in the paper that I'm referencing by the National Pharmaceutical Council, they use the example of aspirin. And it's, it's the same thing. That it doesn't, yep. Whatever brand you have, there's different things that go in it. There's different manufacturing and sub-ingredients. And it just, just face it, things right. work differently in you than they do in me. And that Absolutely. is one of the, the strong reasons why at AI Arthritis, we are hugely invested in working towards precision medicine, meaning matching treatments to the right patient at the right time for the right individual. And that does involve studies in blood work and tissue samples, as, as you yes. mentioned earlier, Deb, and also personalized medicine, which is more on the long lines of preferences if somebody has a fear of needles or doesn't do right. well with injectables or infusions, let's say, and they would do better on a pill form, but maybe that's not what their healthcare system prefers them to be on. All of those things factor mm -hmm. into this. And that's that's really why, why we advocate. So at our organization, our mission is to help other persons affected by these AI arthritis diseases to have a voice alongside other stakeholders, meaning other people who have a stake in our lives. That could be family members, legislators, doctors, nurses. Insurance companies. Anyone. <laughs> and, in, yeah, and in exactly. this discussion today, yes. So I want to mention when we talk about access and, and the question of ethics and who has the right to judge or tell us. And we did a, a paper I, that I authored alongside a couple of bioethicists and shout out to Kathleen Arnston of Lupus and Allied Diseases Association. I do meant, I, I will go into this more uh, when I talk to John, but I did sure. just want to throw it out there now because it's also relevant. And it, in that paper, we had to learn at our organization all about the different ethics of access so what the insurance companies, what governments, what those those people who are making decisions, they have to follow ethics just as the doctors need to, need to follow ethics. And the one that I want to point out right now that we all must think about because to solve problems, we need to understand all sides, right? Yep. Where everyone's, it's, it's one thing for us to say, I want, I want, I want. <laughs> That's great. It does not going to matter. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can want till the cows come home, right? Yes, like it doesn't exactly. matter. It does, yeah. Nothing's going to change if we don't meet in the middle somewhere. And I don't like to say sides either because it, we're, it's not, you know, we're not playing tug of war here per se. It should be it, fluid. It yeah. should be, we're listening to other perspectives. I think that's, a, that's right. a better way of putting it. So when we talk about ethics and what those people, wherever you live, who those, those are, those agencies or groups that are are needing to decide or ending up deciding which which therapies are best for us and you know under uh, they're deciding mainly for two reasons. The first one is cost. Obviously, they yeah. have to think about that. So we we have to keep that in mind and we have yeah. to remember they are have a tough job. 
Yeah, and they do. (laughs) And this goes to an ethic principle called the principle of justice. So the number one thing they have to do is ration for all people. And, you know, we will go into more of this in further breakout episodes. So this is a good thing just to mention quickly. Our talk show is designed, we put these topics on the table. This is the first time. And then we're going to, we, we ask you all to contribute and we can spin off into what we call now 360s. So as we spin off, I think we can all talk about where we are located, if United States, Canada, you know, you're, wherever you're located, and how the value and the assessments of how you are obtaining your treatments and what matters to you, I think we, we, can, we can split out into that in keeping in mind that we all have different healthcare systems. So that's why, I, you right. know, we have to keep it pretty pretty basic here in this conversation, but essentially that ethic of the principle of justice for all is going to be viewed slightly different if you live in the United States, where the the healthcare system is different than a socialized healthcare system, where the mentality is healthcare for all. I will sacrifice for you, right? So it's just different. And so we we just have to keep that in mind as, as we're talking about access and and what types of stories and what's important to patients and preferences. It, it, it's going to change depending on, on your beliefs and, and where you live in the world. And the other part of that is is research. And that kind of goes mm-hmm. back to what Deb and I were talking about with the atypical and this whole myth of average. The persons who are making these decisions, in addition to having the ethical responsibility to have access or ration these numbers, this cost, so that it covers all people, they often do that by by citing credible research. So it's it's a cost and research combination. And that mm-hmm. is why it is relevant for us to also just mention that research is often based on general patient population. Right. It is. And who's putting their stick in their hands up in there? <laughs> right. You know, to, to answer questions. Right. So Deb, being a long-term volunteer with yeah. AR Arthritis, and yeah. is she and I, maybe 10 to 12, a handful of other volunteers that we have that are very invested in the work we do and like to kind of roll up their sleeves and, and get involved, we recognized that, well, we as an organization first recognized a problem. And that's mm-hmm. kind of how we work. We we are pay, we are persons living with diseases. We talk, we communicate, we go, aha, whoa, we 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 might be able to solve something. So yeah, as we've a, been hearing this more than once. <laughs> yeah. So so as an organization and in part of many coalitions, which are groups where several other patient organizations, sometimes rheumatology society, it just depends on the coalition. But the idea is a coalition is a group of organizations or companies or you know, groups, not individuals that, that come together. And we are we are working towards the same goals. And in this mm-hmm. case, most of the many of the coalitions are based either on research or on advocacy, public policy. Mm-hmm. And we get as an organization recommended materials to share webinars to watch, and they're wonderful. I started thinking, I wonder, because I feel so educated and versed because I'm seeing this every, every, you know, every day. And at the same time, they're asking us to, to find patient stories. So it's a problem. 
Why aren't patients mm-hmm. sharing stories? And, and I'm sitting here in the coalition meetings and as it also, not just as a patient representative, but as a person living with the diseases. And I'm mm-hmm. watching the webinars and I'm, I'm looking at the posters and, and I, and I kind of started sitting back and asking some others the same thing that we're attending and saying, do you think that this would make sense if you didn't hear about these issues every day, day in and day out? And that was kind of this, I'm wondering if that has something to do with the stories. So Deb and a handful of these, these other volunteers signed up and said, you know what, I'm willing to be an eye and an ear and, and, yep. and check this out. So we, we pilot tested why, basically, why are there not enough patient stories? Why are we always looking for patient stories? Mm-hmm. And, and we know they're so needed. They're so needed for all of the reasons that Deb and I already mentioned. So we invited a bunch of patients to attend webinars with us. Some of them were labeled 101, mm-hmm. like, like topic, you know, legislative issue 101. Yes. And we took a bunch of posters and advertisements that we're recruiting for, well, uh, de-identified. So we took off logos and we really just wanted them to be able to look at them and answer a couple things. A, do you understand what this is in generally? Two, can you explain what it is in a couple of sentences if we take this material away from you? <laughs> Right. Um, and that's the key. That's yeah. key and, right there. And three, would you share your story after attending this webinar? And Deb, I'm going to turn it over to you as a person who went through this little experiment with us and just give us give some feedback on on kind of how it went. You know, it was interesting, kind of eye opening too. some people. They'll immediately say, yes, I understand. But when the next question is, can you skip? Date it back to me what you heard or read nine times out of 10. It was very skewed. You can tell they're forcing it because they're they're like, well, sure, I understand what that means. But then when you're asking, it's like, uh, you're now I'm on the spot and I have to say it back. Well, hmm, I I can't do that. And I can't do it accurately. I might pull one out of five things out, but that's it. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's clear that the messaging that's coming across about whatever it is, is not in layman's terms enough that the general population understands. And that's what you and I do. We go to all these different research sessions and we can understand things and disseminate it back to everybody in layman's terms. That's what we do. And that is really hard for some people to actually wrap their heads around and to put their fingers on what it is. Absolutely. And so then that third question being, would you share your story uh, nine times out of 10? It was no. Well, no. I'd like to. I'd like to, but I don't know how. I don't know how. And I don't feel completely comfortable that I can craft it because I don't fully know I fit and I don't want to look silly. I don't want to look, you know, like I don't want to put my name to something and then I'm not certain. And, and it was really great feedback. And then we took it a step further after getting that. And again, inviting people to webinars and these were entitled, literally one of them was 101. And afterwards I asked for all everyone to, to submit notes. The notes that I received were, were so eye opening. 
things as, as little as like the word payer, which in the United States, that is synonymous with insurance company. Right. But so many people were confused by that word and thought it was patient. They're like, patient's the one who pays. So it must, right. like, we don't understand why they're saying we are doing X, Y, Z. And, and, and they would get stuck on those moments and trying to figure out, miss the next couple of sentences. So again, that's just one of many examples. But okay, we've identified that we all know this problem getting stories. How, why is it? We feel like we've hit on some pretty strong reasons why. And right. because of that, we decided we're, we're launching a program. There's four topics we're going to focus on in, in our program, but I'm going to mention two because two are universal, two are, are international. And that is, as we have already sort of put on the table here, the importance of innovation and the fact that we are not average. Many of us, I don't know any patient who really considers themselves too average, uh, but you know, we all have evolving disease. We all, in people like Deb, there's people who have gone through every treatment and, and are waiting for that next one to come, to come out. So right. there, we've got to remember, we need to find a way to balance that whole idea and principle of justice and, and access for all and ration yeah. with the need for innovation and research. So we've got to, we've got to meet in the middle on, on that. So we identifying these things. And then the other one that is relevant internationally is value assessments. Uh, you can see there's there's so many different terms that come along with this, and that's in itself confusing. Uh, you see value assessments, you see value assessment frameworks, you see health technology assessments, you see quality adjusted life years, all of that, same bucket. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Guess what? <laughs> Guess what? Same thing. Um, yeah. Or it's not the exact same. Like there, some of them are methods used in the right, overarching. Right. But the but the point is, just that alone is somebody who sees this and is so versed in it. To me, that gets confusing. Just mm-hmm. the fact that all of these different these different names are being used. What it essentially is is finding ways for the broader healthcare systems to assess the value of the treatments that they are then assigning and then comparing them to cost. And those are the ones that get chosen. And often it has to do with a a general patient population Mm -hmm. equation. It's added in there because nobody's really found a, you know, a better way to include what a patient feels possibly is a, is a great improvement of quality of life may not mean as much as, the value of somebody who has a full 99% wellness. Like it's hard to explain here and we're going to do breakout episodes on this and we're going to focus on this in a layman's terms, patient-led classroom creatively where we break down little segments, but where whether it's words, where we literally have a, a 15 second video where you can click. This is what a payer is. This is what a quality is or or quality adjusted life. These bite sized, but then also broader webinars, some interactive, always accessible to answer questions. We're going to have field trips, which is really if we go to a conference or we go to a webinar and in reporting back, we'll have 
We'll have movie days, which is recording segments of some of the webinars that we may attend and then playing them back and having interactive lessons. And really the, the whole goal of this program is we hope to increase the number of patient or, and supporters, so not just patients, I mean, your husbands, significant yeah. others, wives, you know, family members, all important in having a voice in your experiences and participating in story sharing and testimonies. And we hope to heighten the contribution among various demographics, not just the same people speaking. Absolutely. That's a it's, huge it's one. It's necessary. It's necessary. And expanding these efforts internally by us at AI Arthritis, creating our own group of ambassadors to represent the, the patient voice and and teach them and mentor them how to have a voice and, and reach out. And then what also I think makes this really innovative in itself and novel of a program that we're trying to do is that by having this level of education, not only will it create more confidence that our supporters can speak on their own, but they'll be able to put things into their own word that confident is important identify, oh my gosh, that happened to me. Yes. Because that's why people aren't sharing their stories. Because they don't know. They don't know. Or they're not right. confident or they're not sure. So it'll right. give them the confidence to identify. And even more so, which is totally novel to this, this situation, is we all talk to each other. We all are in social media. We're all in different groups. Patients mm -hmm. talk to each other all the time. And if a patient is, is venting or ranting about, I didn't get access to X, Y, Z, guess what? Now there's going to be eyes and people who are going to say, oh my gosh, that's this issue. Oh my gosh, they're experiencing this issue. And they'll be confident enough to tell that person, hey, I know where you can go to, to get help and have a voice on this. And they can send them to our program. That's awesome. Just again, novel, like you said, and unique. And it's collective eyes, which are all of us patients that are, you know, seeing all these things and identifying confidently. You just experienced this issue. And I've got a program that will help you share confidently your story and be able to make a difference. Yes. And so, so we wanted to throw this issue on the table and and we're going to break out again the way the show works now <laughs> is we have put sort of these topics we've talked about these value assessments how we've talked about innovation now we're going to 360 out which means we'll have many versions many talks it can be in in video form facebook live tiktok all these different varieties so that we can get all voices and all opinions and all perspectives if you want to learn more about this program we're talking about and signing up you can go to aiarthritis.org backslash advocacy that's a d v o-c-a-c-y so you can there's a sign up sheet right there and you can learn more about getting involved in that. And also as part of the program, we're going to be, we have already started collecting a whole series of resources, just like, again, if you're in a classroom and you have all these like recommended readings. So one of the resources of the many resources are this myth of average that's from the National Pharmaceutical Council. And I'm going to talk to John a little bit more about that resource and some others that 
we will be building on in this particular class. I think that that wraps it up for us, Miss Deb. That sounds beautiful. All right. And I can't wait to see all the 360ths. I know. Me neither. So going to tune in now and stay tuned because we're going to be talking with John next. Okay, so we are sitting here. I am sitting here, I should say, speaking with a gentleman named John O'Brien, who is the CEO of the National Pharmaceutical Council, or NPC, you might hear me reference to. Hey, John. Hey, Tiffany. How are you doing? Uh, Much better having (laughs) spent some time chatting with you. I am really looking forward to this. Okay, awesome. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and even the NPC? So uh, I'm I'm John O'Brien. You said it. I'm the president and CEO of the National Pharmaceutical Council. We are a health policy research organization in Washington, D.C. that's dedicated to the advancement of good evidence and science. We foster an environment in the United States that supports medical innovation. And as a pharmacist who's worked for a health plan and done two tours of duty in the government and the administrations, as well as spending time as a health policy fellow in in the Senate, I can't think of any better place for me to get to be right now. Oh, I love it. All right. Show over. We're the end. Perfect. No. Okay. So, <laughs> so it, you may, you may be saying, all right, well, well tell me, Tiffany, why is John here at the table on AI Arthritis Voices 360 today? And as you heard in the prior segment, when, when I was speaking with Deb, we at AI Arthritis really recognize this need over the last couple of years to creatively find different ways. And I'm going to use the word innovation too, John, but I think our innovation, so we're going to focus in on that word here afterwards. So I'm going to ask you to tell me about your innovation. I'm going to talk about how we're using the, the term. So at our organization, we recognize these missing links or these problems, and then we try to create innovative solutions, meaning no one has really traveled that path before. We're looking at a different journey, what has worked, what hasn't, and then we try to find a solution to to move forward in something creative and different. And what we realize is there's some legislative or public policy issues, whether it's U.S.-based or global, that patients really are interested in getting more involved in. They want change. They want access to treatments. They want to make sure they get the best treatment at the right time for their own individual needs. But they don't always realize that they can actually have a voice in this But to do that, they really need to understand the topics a little bit better. And who better to teach them than patients? Here, here. So we have designed this whole creative online virtual, I don't like to say classroom per se, but it is sort of like a classroom. Various different ways you can come to small segment webinars. You can have individual question and answers. We're going to have a library of resources to reference the issues and that is how John is tied in, because there are a couple resources that we at AR Arthritis had found through the National Pharmaceutical Council that resonated so much with our work it, to fight for precision medicine, to stop that whole mystery patient that, that I and many other have experienced. And we invited them to submit several of their, their pieces, which we will gladly share with all of you. as resources for our classroom so we could reference uh, some really great resources 
and documentation to increase our impact and our effect. So that's why John is here. And I want to add, yes, there is pharmaceutical in the name. Patients and pharmaceutical representatives and industry representatives all can sit at the table and need to be sitting at the table if we're really going to create solutions together. So that's what the show is all about. And John, I'm going to turn that back over to you and tell me a little bit about just innovation in general, because I know that that is a, is a word used quite often in pharmaceutical research and talking about new treatments. Well, innovation is, is something that is happening all the time at our members, right? Which are the, the research-based pharmaceutical companies. And the easiest way for me to describe innovation is the never-ending search for new cures and treatments. And that resonates with me because, look, I'm a pharmacist who really wanted to be a sports broadcaster when I grew up. I'm supposed to be at spring training right now, like talking about a baseball game. But my mom got sick and I was young and I couldn't for the life of me figure out why some treatments worked for her and other treatments didn't. Right. They're both 10, 50 milligram tablets. One's white, one's green. One works, one doesn't. And I just wanted to know, like, what is inside those tablets that's making the difference? And, and that first led me to, like, the Encyclopedia of Science and, and Innovation. And I read the stories about early drug discoverers back in the day, like the names that you know. And, and that ultimately led me to pharmacy school. And, and, and that's where, I mean, look, I had to memorize the molecular structure of the top 250 medicines. And I'm so old that I think I had a, a three hour lecture on immunology where Dr. Parker Small at the University of Florida said, pay attention, this, this is going to be a, an important topic someday. So if you fast forward and think about, well, just, just your own journey, right? Someone who goes to the doctor looking for an answer to find out years later in that journey that you had something that they didn't have a name for at the time. And then lo and behold, there are researchers in a lab who are thinking about the molecular structure and the biologic basis of a disease that they weren't even aware of yet coming up with something that would actually be effective against that target. So not only is that what innovation is to me, it's also why, as you described, patients and researchers are essential to stay connected during the development process. That is 100% true and something that, you know, I was, uh, if you've listened to the show in the past, you may have heard me talk a little bit about my diagnostic journey, which I was talking to John about before we started officially recording. And it, it really resonates true to me. And I was that mystery patient. I know more than not, there are mystery patients and more than not, there are atypical, meaning you don't check all the boxes. You're not part of that general patient population. We have done different surveys and studies at our own organization, just showing that more patients even look at themselves as atypical. So when we're assigned to take certain treatments, because that's what is right for the general patient population, and they aren't working, 
then we feel that. And every bit of time that goes by that we're not on the right treatment, we are we have the potential of getting progressively worse. And with my case, I had a disease that did not have a name yet, which what are the chances you think in this day and age, you know, there's, we should, we should know. And here I was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis on a treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. And the whole time I had spondyloarthritis, but my diagnosis of non-radiographic so long, when you put my name and the organization name and that it's like show over. It's, it, it's like, it's like two hours long. So non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, then it, it made the, the putting me on the right treatment that was indicated for my disease made night and day difference in a matter of just weeks. I went months not being able to, I had to roll out of bed. My spine was so stiff. It felt like glass that was going to shatter if I even moved a half of an inch. So I had to wait until I could move a half an inch. And then I had to roll out of bed and then sit there until I could, I could either crawl or stand up. That is not a quality of life at at all, (laughs) at all. And why I and our organization are very vested in the need to keep researching and keep helping patients match to the right treatments. And I'll add not just me, but there are so many people, Deb, who we just had on the segment prior has gone through everything, has been, has been diagnosed since, since she was 12. And she has tried and failed so many treatments. And that is, she is not unique. So what do these patients do? If they have already failed everything, they need researchers to continue to help. So that's why we're sitting at this table. We're putting the topic down that it is really needed for patients to understand the importance of research the importance of how that can influence the treatments, the medications, and non-pharmacologic. Some, you know, the whole the whole global way that that we we treat ourselves, getting that access, and then even a step further. Once you know that, you can start to see how our laws and our in the way things are regulated by government or insurance, wherever you live, all of it ties in together. So if you're laws or your government or whoever is allowing you access to the therapies that you need and you're not getting the ones that you need, there are things that you can do. And AR arthritis is is leading some efforts in that and we want you to be able to join those and, and we'll definitely tell you about that as we wrap up the segment. But going back to how how we really got connected here. So funny story. A friend of mine, shout out Kathleen Arnston's president of Lupus Allied Diseases Association, mention her all the time because she's one of my best friends. And she sent me an email and she said, Tiffany, read this. You will love it. That's all it said. And it was it was an article called The Myth of Average. And I wanted you, John, could you tell us a little bit about um, the premise of of this paper, the myth of average? Yeah. So, you know, look, first of all, the 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 journey that you just described often begins before a prescription for the most innovative treatment, right? Like you, Mm -hmm. you tried all the non pharmacologic stuff. You've tried the OTC stuff. You've asked friends and family members for recommendations. And then you go get 
a prescription and maybe that prescription works, maybe it doesn't. And you keep going until you find a physician that figures out what they think is going to be best for you, right? And and you're you're so happy that someone took the time to figure out what it is that they think you need. And then you go fill the prescription and the pharmacist says that they can't fill it. And the reason for that is, is that many insurance companies design formularies. And those formularies, it's essentially like a list of, of 200 classes of medicines. And what they're doing is saying to the manufacturers of all these different classes of medicines, like there may be six of you in this one therapeutic area. We think we only need two. Who's going to give us the biggest rebate to be one of the two drugs on our formula? The problem is, and I, and I learned this working at a health plan, when, when you design a formulary or you're thinking about those 200 some classes, sometimes those classes can be very big labels, right? Like anti-arthritis agents. And there are a lot of different kinds of drugs that fall under that bucket. So you can't fault the insurance company, right? They're they're trying to design a formula that's going to be best for the population of people that they're treating. What our researchers knew is that every patient is different. And they set out to ask themselves some key questions, right? Why do individuals have different responses to the same treatments? And if a patient isn't average, but their formulary was designed for the average patient, how could that impact their access to treatment? So then we began to ask, well, what tools and evidence do insurers rely on to make their coverage decisions? How do they design those formularies? How do they design the prior authorization criteria? Or worse, unfortunately, you're probably very familiar with the step therapy process. We want to see that none of these other drugs will make you feel better until we let you have the drug that your doctor believes will. So then we asked what challenges do insurers face when trying to cover patients with different responses? And then how can benefit design change to improve patient access to, to high quality healthcare treatments and services? So the key takeaways from the report, right? Something that's not maybe novel to you is that patients differ. We're individual, age, genetics, chronic conditions, or racial and ethnic background, all of, there are so many things, our behavior, our biology, that cause us to respond in different ways to the same treatment. But as we talked about, healthcare decisions are often made at the population level, not the individual patient level. We believe, and we state in this publication, that health insurance coverage needs to be more patient-centered and fair. We need policies that align patient cost sharing or access to treatments with what's most clinically appropriate for them. Because they may say, we'll let you have the drug that your doctor says you should have, but it's going to be at a 40% coinsurance as opposed to a $35 copay. So that's what we set out to research. And, and those are the, the, the key takeaways that we found. And I'm, I'm grateful that it made a difference to someone with his voice as clearly heard as yours. Well, thank you for that. 
and I'm going to I'm going to build on why it resonated with me pulling out some of the points that that you you said John. So the first thing is I, I received that and then a couple other a, a couple other links to to the piece and I look I like to look at the authors cuz sometimes if I want to reach out it's a info at and you know you never know and I see Kimberly Westrich and I went what? I mean, it's not like a Jones or a Smith is very, I don't think I've ever met a Westrich that was not related to me. So in the subject line, I wrote something of the myth of, and are we related? And so she yeah. responded back within an hour or so. And it's been a kind of a joke now as we, we still don't know. We're still actually trying to figure that out. But so I felt, wow, there's some connection there. Like what are, what are the chances? But all joking aside, in 2015, AR Arthritis received a grant to do an investigation into step therapy. So I am referencing step therapy in regards to the U.S. and I know that we're we're international, but this but the takeaways still are relevant, regardless if you live in the United States or not. Like John mentioned, more patient centered, fairness, clinically relevant for all. These things, th- these points are relevant to you. So when I talk about these findings, this is also relevant if you're global. So we went into the investigation and we had two bioethicists. And then I already mentioned Kathleen Arnston, one of my BFFs from LADA, and she was our public policy advisor. And my specialty really has always been sort of connecting the dots and problem solving and and leading this, this investigation into solving problems. So I'm getting all of the information, the bioethicists write, write all of the information on the principle of justice, which you mentioned, John, and in so many words, that's the, you can't blame the health system, the insurance companies, the governments, whomever is trying to give justice for all, enough ration for all people. Okay. So they've got a big hurdle <laughs> to, to, to go over here. Right. So they were giving us all, they, they outlined all of the ethics that the insurance companies or have to, but also the doctors. And then I'm getting all this feedback. I'm, I'm cutting and pasting different opinions, pros, cons, for, not for. And I, and I had a wall of nothing but these pieces. And then I've got a big red marker and I was like an FBI wall. Yep. Yep. And yep, I, I, I was go, going back and forth. And I sat there, there was a point where I sat there. I think it was about two days. I just kept staring at it. And I had a moment where I thought, I can't, I can't figure this out. I can't figure it out. And then all of a sudden I had an aha moment. And it was because I was a patient who tried to be in clinical trials and couldn't because I was atypical. And at that moment, it was like a domino. All the lines just started like connecting. And I said, wait a minute. If an atypical patient cannot be in a clinical trial and the companies, the insurance companies are citing efficacy and safety in research, and I don't count because I am not a general patient population person, which many of us are, in that case, the ethical onus should fall onto the doctor who, under under their ethics, should treat the individual characteristics of the patient. I was like, drop mic. <laughs> so so in that in that paper, we always we still cite it at, at our organization, and it led us to our work. Fast forward now to fighting for for all people, whether you are textbook, whether you are general patient population or not. 
we know that current treatments, we go and spend all of this money well spent, mind you, to get these treatments to market. But if only 40 to 60% of us are going to have the, the full response or it's going to give us the same amount of quality of life, we need more treatments. That that's that's just, I mean, it's 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 a pretty easy equation if you if you lay it out that way. And then thinking of the fact that, you know. It is important for the doctor and the patient to decide. So I'm going to give another shout out to Autoimmune Association, who who leads Let My Doctors Decide Coalition here in the U.S. I'm an advisory panelist on on that, and they're working really hard for this as well. So you can see patient organizations, patients, pharmaceutical representatives, researchers, we really are all in this together, and legislators and payers or insurance companies. We all have to continue this conversation so that we can move forward. And this myth, I love that title. It's the title of this the show now. Well, <laughs> because of that, it's Myth of Average. Tiffany, I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because uh, there's a small biotech company that invited me to meet with their board. And when they were telling me their story, they were describing how a relationship was formed between the CEO of the company who was leading the development for this treatment and a mom whose child was suffering from the condition. And over time, they began to like have a picnic for the, the patients and the families of the patients and the people who were doing the research to try to bring a cure to this condition. And the, the CEO basically said, Whenever he would introduce this mom, he would essentially say, she understands the mechanism of this disease and the different treatments that are being researched, perhaps as well as my head of development. <laughs> so it's not just that we're at this table, it's that we have so much to learn from each other especially when it comes to what the condition is actually like in the real world. So one of my beefs with health technology assessment or value assessment is that oftentimes these are very opaque models and somebody else has decided what's the methodology. And they may not include something as important as caregiver burden. And caregiver burden sounds a lot like a health economics term. But when you dig into what that means, it often means that a family member can't be present at work because they are going home to help someone with a chronic condition with the activities of daily life. So if you're assessing the value of a medicine, like what is what does this drug do that the drug that came out before it doesn't do? And you're only measuring that in like functional status or lab values. And you're not thinking about what is this person's life like? And what is the life of the people that are caring for this person like? You may make some bad decisions. So if a health technology assessment organization tells an employer or an insurer that this drug is only 
$5,000 better than the other drug. And therefore, the price should only be $5,000 more. But it's costing me as an employer maybe $20,000 of staff time because one of my key employees is spending time away from the office to care for someone with a chronic disease. I have completely misstated the value of this medicine. And I have made the wrong decision for my company. And oftentimes the people behind these value assessment models don't explain what goes into their calculation, let alone explain it to the people who are using those decisions to decide whether to cover a medicine or whether to buy a, a particular health plan or not. Yeah. So that actually blended right in, which I knew it would because the two topics we said we were going to talk about would, would kind of blend. And that's the innovation and, and the myth of, of being average. And then, as, as John said, health technology assessments. Could you just weigh in a little bit on, on kind of defining health technology assessments for us? Yeah. So it began in countries that made a decision that every dollar we spend on healthcare coverage is a dollar that we're not spending on some other domestic or government priority. And for that reason, they were trying to figure out how to get the most for the finite amount of healthcare resources that they could afford to spend. And oftentimes, those models are based on something called a quality-adjusted life year. Unfortunately, in, in, in my opinion, based on the literature that I've read, those kinds of decisions often have the tendency to be discriminatory for people who are living with a disease or disability because they may value their year of imperfect health just as much as somebody would value a year of perfect health. So health technology assessment attempts to measure how much does it cost to get an improvement per quality adjusted life year. And this isn't a simple science. It is the result of a framework or a calculation that whoever is creating the model decides. Now, again, these, these, these models are typically a, a, an opaque black box or, or a mystery to people, which is why I, I, I think they should be more transparent and reproducible. Ex experienced researchers should be able to take somebody else's assumptions and the analyses used in their assessments and, and, and calculate, do we get the same results? But they should also be able to go to the patient community and say, these are the criteria that this entity used to calculate whether this new medicine would be worth paying for. Is there anything that you would value that they might have left out? And I first became aware of this in, I can't remember, it was 2005, 2006. I was in New Zealand when one of the first new types of breast cancer drugs was approved. And their health technology assessment body said it will cost us more than $50,000 to gain one quality adjusted life year. So we're not going to pay for 
this medicine. If you're a woman with breast cancer, particularly if you know that it's the kind of breast cancer that would respond to this genetically based personalized medicine, and you hear that this drug is available, you know, a, a 12 hour flight away, but your country has said that you can't have access to this science, that has to be very discouraging. So fast forward 16 years, when I start to hear of health insurers and state governments and potentially the federal government becoming interested in using health technology assessment to decide what drugs they're going to pay for or how much they should pay for a particular medicine without being able to influence what should be a transparent and reproducible model, I get very frustrated. So to me, I, I think it's essential that we better understand value assessment and that we follow the frameworks to make sure that these are meant to be tools to achieve better outcomes for patients rather than a fig leaf for cost-cutting mechanisms that could actually be well-intentioned but harm people as a result. Yes. So essentially, kind of going back to, to what John and I were talking about earlier with this, this whole idea of, hey, you know, the governments, the insurance companies, the whole health system, the justice for all, there is a need to cut down costs to make sure that we have a well-distributed system so that people can gain access generally. And, you know, we're kind of to that, that question where, you know, these, these value assessments, if you, if you look at the websites or watch their, their videos, I mean, they specifically will say, this is not for individualized. This is for a general population. And so here we are in this, this sort of conundrum of we're moving towards precision personalized medicine. At the same time, we have patients who are exhausting all treatments, yet the value assessments are really geared towards a general population. And something you mentioned, John, that's really, really important is that patient value. So without getting too complex, because we will post some great graphics on this and, and you'll have me and some other patient leaders in the education courses that we're doing to really break this down in layman's terms. If, if you want to learn more about it, because trust me, it is relevant to your life and your access to, to treatments, regardless of, of, of where you live. Essentially, it's a scale. Zero, you're dead. You know, one is is the is the most perfect health, and you fall in along the lines. And there are equations that that the persons choosing the medications will look at, and they'll say, well, you know, this this one will give a person up to a one. They could you have a whole quality of life, and then they'll say, well, this is only you only get a five. You're only going to be you know the the half of a one. And who's to say that half of a one isn't fantastic for me? and I hate talking about dollars and cents, right? But here in the United States, it's typically an employer that's making that decision. Mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's not just whether you're able to roll out of bed, it's whether you're able to come to the office and be your best self. And if you're exhausted because you haven't been able to get the rest that you needed, no offense, but like, I'm not getting the best return on my human resources investment. But nobody's explaining that to the insurance company or explaining it to the person at the company who's buying insurance when they're looking at a list of medicines and saying, this is covered, this is not. And that's the risk of using these quality adjusted life years 
in trying to establish these population-based coverage decisions. 100%. In our diseases, approximately one of 10 people are going to be affected. And it, whether it's your employer, your employee or their family member is going to be impacted with an arthritis disease. So if your employee is not able to get to work, is not brain fog is a huge issue. I can sometimes fight through the fatigue and the pain. Am I happy? No. But, you know, if it's if it's light, I might be able to, to deal to deal with it, but it will impact the way I work. Brain fog. I can't work. Cannot work. You can, if you can't think, you can't work. And so <laughs> that's and if you're a manual, you can't work if you're in pain or you can't you can't, you know, or if you're high energy situation where the fatigue drains you, all of those things need to be factored in 100 percent. That's a good segue to just mention these shows do not, these episodes do not stop because John and I stopped talking or Deb and I stopped talking or whomever stopped talking. We have a, what we call 360 it, and that is right from our name. So starting in 2022, we are taking any topic, any bullet point, ever any any statement that was brought that it resonates with you and inviting people back in, in various forms, email, social media, webinars, video, if you want to continue talking about this, regardless of patient, supporter, in, insurance, payer, legislator, we need you at the table. And so we will have these mini breakout discussions to continue the conversation further and further indefinitely. <laughs> Hopefully until the problem solved. But <laughs> well, can I can I tell you though, years. Tiffany, how important that is? Because look, I I didn't go into detail about the fact that one of my past jobs was being the senior advisor to a secretary of health and human services in the United States, particularly mm -hmm. on the topic of drug pricing. And I I heard from everybody. I heard from drug companies, I heard from insurers, I heard from PBMs. But the people whom I always met with and learned the most from were the patients that came in and said, let me tell you what's going on. We, we take a medicine, the, the drug company came out with a lower cost version of the medicine, the health plan's not covering it because they'd rather have the high cost, high rebate medicine instead of the low cost drug that, that would be more affordable for us. And I didn't understand in plain English what it was that they were talking about until those patients came in and explained that to me. So regardless of, of what political party is in power, there's nobody that the government needs to hear from more than patients. Yes, I, I agree with that. And I'm, I'm also gonna, gonna add one thing. I, I, I take furious notes, so I don't mean <laughs> <laughs> I have to start posting these or make art out of them or something because um, I, I really do. But it helps me remember to circle back if, if, if I forget about something. And one of the things that I also just want to throw out because I think it would be a great 360 it is the, the idea that when we're talking about the importance of innovation and in turn, the the value assessments or or basically, which is is deciding our access to that that innovation is the decision making factor that can get lost and we know that shared decision making between a doctor and a provider is extremely important to making sure that we're we're not only getting the right treatments physically or biologically but also that these are right for us for our individual need and if we continue to move forward with not thinking about 
you know, the if the personalized or individual. And if that's going too far da- away from the general population, at least consider the shared decision making element, because that is very relevant. It is something that is becoming more and more on the forefront of of how we decide what's best for us. So we can't lose that here, here. as, as what, however we, we come to a solution. John, I want to ask you if there's there's any other because I just circled back. Is are there any other points that you wanted you wanted to express? No, I, I just I, I I would encourage you to 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 please stay in touch because the the research that we do is again intended to help patients get access to medicines, but also to foster this environment of innovation. And and we recently published a paper that that we affectionately call the what would have happened paper. Right, and, and we went back and we looked at some key classes of medicines and asked the question, what would have happened if these medicines didn't exist? And, and, and I won't go through all of the details for all the classes of medicines, but in, in rheumatoid arthritis, we saw uh, improvement in, in functional status per patient and many more pharmacoeconomic measures improved than we would have had had the drug not been available. So when I hear people in Washington talking about policies that will lead to fewer new medicines being developed, or even worse saying we have too many medicines, we can probably do without five or 10 or 30 of them. I wish they understood where we would be today if some of the medicines that we rely on to relieve human suffering wouldn't have been developed and where we could be if some of those policies happen. I read that and and I I there's so many we're going to have a dozen 360 hits just off of, just off of your papers because that in itself is is just such an interesting uh, topic and it is a really good paper so we will definitely share that one and 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 it could be kind of kind of fun to ask people to read it and then circle back like a book club type of thing and say, Hey, let's, let's have a conversation. Cause it is really fascinating. The, the information that, that was collected on, on that. But a, as I mentioned in, in the beginning of this segment, the reason that we, we have John on in the national pharmaceutical council is the resources that they're providing is very in line with what we do, our fight for precision medicine, innovation, access to treatments and therapies at AI arthritis. And we are launching here in, I've got to date it, we're in 2022. <laughs> so in 2022, we are starting a, a new program, patient-led education on these topics and a few more that are relevant to many does not matter if you're located in the US or not quality that's quality the value assessments and innovation definitely access to treatments relevant regardless of where you live so we will make sure to circle back and give you the information to sign up for that program if you're interested other than that all i have to say is thank you john for for joining me and having this conversation it's been a pleasure well, thank you. And, and kudos to you for what you're doing. This, this classroom that you've created is awesome. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to come back anytime. Okay. Sounds great. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tiffany. And there you go. It's a wrap. So this has been a really exciting episode. We put on the table for the first time the idea of more patient voices necessary in public policy. And that involves really 
all of us because we're all different and we're all unique and we all have perspectives to share. And all of that matters when we're talking about the type of therapies that work for us and the needs for us. So you've heard from from Deb, who was an intricate person involved with AR arthritis as we started figuring out how can we address the issue that we know we need more patients at the table in these conversations. And I think we've come up with a pretty good solution. So again, if you want to check out that program and sign up, free to sign up, it's at arthritis.org backslash advocacy. And we will be starting a lot of this education very soon in mid-2022, depending on when you're listening to this. But it's a program that's not going away. It's going to live on as our core program at the organization. So regardless of when you hear this episode, it's going. So you can always go to that link and and sign up, even if you're tuning in five years from the time that this this originally aired. You can find this and all of our episodes at, at AIarthritis.org backslash talk show. And while on our website, we really, really hope that you'll consider tipping the team, giving a donation to the show, because we cannot continue to do what we do without your support. Very, very important. If you do listen to us on your favorite podcast station, we also would appreciate you subscribing and give us a rating. We hope it'll be five stars. We think we deserve that. I don't know. You tell us. So there you go. You can also find us on social media on all the channels at IFAI Arthritis. And I think that'll do it. So looking forward to continuing this conversation with everybody because only together can we change the stories of tomorrow. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 